Hey friends, welcome to Conversations with Kenzie, a podcast hosted by yours truly, Kenzie Brenna. No topic goes unturned here. We talk about everything with everyone. We like to get raw and sometimes we get heavy and sometimes we swear. So I'm warning you now. Also, we are working remotely. So audio quality between host and guest may differ. Lastly, check out our show notes for giveaways, fun promotions, or discounts to our favorite stuff. Enjoy the show. All right. Hi, Shan. Hi, Kenzie. I'm very excited. <laughs> this is like our, our relationship is building very rapidly. I'm extremely excited about it. This is our third date, and um, I'm hoping to make out. Oh, okay. Thanks from so much for saying that. <laughs> I think it's good to manage expectations. You should set it out there at the top of the date. Like I'm hoping that this ends with a makeout. If you're not interested, that's okay. But I'm just letting you know where I think things should go. Amazing. I'm okay with that direction. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Can you tell us a little bit about your background? We met on a really fun Bumble panel and I felt like seeing you talk, I was like, oh my God, this like woman is like a flame and I'm like a moth. Like I felt like so drawn to you and what you were talking about. And you have such an electrifying like personality. And then I checked out more thoroughly your Instagram account and you were talking so eloquently and you were so articulate about stuff that I had never even brought up before to myself, to my partner, to my friends and stuff. And so I was like, I really would love to have a conversation with this magnificent human. And then I found out that I'm like, okay, and she's huge on YouTube and she's like a celebrity and like all of this stuff. (laughs) So I'm really excited to have you on today. And I was curious if we could start off by you just letting us know a little bit about your background, how you became so involved in intimacy conversations. Well, we have to first start off by acknowledging that incredible love letter that you just gave me. Thank you so much. I'm so deeply honored. They can't see what I'm doing, but I just touched my heart the entire time you were speaking. That's such a joy to hear. And I'm equally as fascinated by you, you know, hence why I'm hoping we progress things very rapidly in our love affair. But all in all, um, I started off in this space just because I had a really shitty teen sex life. Um, I, from a very young age, you know how some people are naturally precocious at the piano and they're just very drawn to singing or they're really great at arts and crafts. I was just very physical at a very young age. I was very fascinated by the human body, by touch, by intimacy, but that's not a interest that's naturally encouraged uh, for children. So I knew at a very young age that it was a good and positive part of my life. But based on my upbringing and my parents, you know, I guess fear around that side of me, it was really heavily discouraged. And so by the time that hormones kicked into play and it became less of this outward fascination, more of like an internal drive, I just didn't feel like I had any safe spaces to explore and to talk about what it was that I was experiencing or going through. And so my educators ended up being porn and fiction TV shows, fiction novels. And that informed so much of what I thought sex was supposed to be. And that as a roadmap, you know, for most people and myself included can lead to disaster. So I had really awful teen experiences. When I turned 19, I thought to myself, okay, either everybody was right. And this actually is a very awful, traumatic, damaging, dark, hurtful place, or I have been interacting with it in the wrong way. and I don't have the right information. So I got a library card and I just spent an entire summer researching everything I could about sex 
and sexuality. And I found that there was great information, but it was really fucking boring. Um, but that was just the time, you know, that, that was when I was 19. So we're talking, you know, 2001 or something. I don't even, that's not true. I'm not that old, but it was a long time ago. I'm 35 now. Someone else do the math for me. It's a while ago. Um, but it, you know, the, at the time, the, the information just wasn't accessible to me, wasn't very youth friendly. And so I saw a real niche for myself to bring that information to light, to utilize the interesting characters um, the salacious storylines that porn and TV shows did, but actually put factual information behind it. And that was my mission then. And it continues to be my mission today. Wow. There is so much of that that I want to unpack. And I want to basically touch on every single thing that you mentioned. I can't tell you how often my friends have disclosed to me that they have experienced this physicality at a very young age, like experience, like exploring their bodies, being really interested in other bodies and how that was shamed out of them and that they quickly understood that your body was not meant to be touched. And that yeah. if you were touching yourself in certain ways that it was no, 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 you can't do that. And instead of parents having like a very healthy conversation about, you know, maturity, bodies, what things are, how things can feel, it was just so uncomfortable for them. So they just shut it down. And then that affected the way that they were sexual later on in life and how it just made them so out of tune with their body. Like they viewed their body as like something that they're disconnected from. Would you say that that is like that happened to you at some point? And then you were like, you know, kind of steadfast on like figuring out like more ways to be connected through going to the library and like educating yourself and all of that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I actually didn't know if it was going to get better or if it could get better because you start to think, well, everybody, everyone, you know, the, the, the truth is all the shame and the repression and the freedom, you know, which is at the free sex world only leads you to pain, lack of orgasms, lack of connection, lack of intimacy. But like most things in life, the truth is in the middle. It's obviously not meant to be a, a space of shame and repression, but nor should it be a place of reckless abandon where you just throw yourself into it and things just work out the way that the media depicts. So I think that me searching that information for myself was finding that middle ground. And then my career has been wanting to express that middle ground to other people so they can find it for themselves and hopefully much earlier. But exactly what you just said I had a girl tell me a really poignant story because the shame comes from different areas. And she said that when she was like five or six, they had a outdoor pool, you know, like those kiddie pools that you fill up with water and they're filling up with water and it's hurt her sister. And she said to her sister, like, take the hose and put it all over your body and like put it down there in your private parts. It feels amazing. And she said it so innocently and like excited. Like I get to share this thing with my sister, like try this shit out. It's amazing. And then her sister was like, that's bad. You've been doing that. It's a very bad, bad, bad thing. Stop doing that. Do not talk about that. It's very bad. And her sister's maybe a year or two older than her. Um, and so people get it from a variety of different vantage points, whether that's the school system, whether that's parenting, could be peers. Um, it might even be your own internal messaging that you're not even quite sure where it comes from because it's so prevalent to talk about sex in a negative way. And then all of a sudden you turn into your teens and it's the exact opposite. There's just like this encouragement to be uh, wild about it. There's this encouragement to let go of any control over it. And um, I hope that a lot more young people are figuring it out a lot sooner than people in my generation did. What was your story? Yeah. Um, 
I was 100% interested in like the sex scenes of adult movies growing up. Like I was like, what is that? That looks awesome. And that makes me feel good watching it. But I didn't know why. But it was always very much like turn away. Don't look at it. We're not going to have that conversation. It if anything had to do with sex, it became silly really fast, like kind of, you know, dulling the um, no, I, I was going to say dulling the seriousness of sex with humor, but sex doesn't always have to be serious as well. But I'm just saying in general, for when you're trying to give a kid education on that, you want to take it somewhat seriously and somewhat lightly. But it was always like either making me distracted from it or dulling it down with humor or not talking about it. And so I was the exact same way where I found a lot of education through porn, but I didn't know I didn't have an intersectional lens. I didn't have, you know, like a trauma informed lens. I didn't have any lens. And so I was just consuming. If I was consuming porn, it wasn't from a place of like being educated and mm -hmm. and being self-aware. It was like, what turns me on? I'm going to go into this world, but I'm not going to have a conversation with myself about it. So I'm curious, do you still find that a lot of people are still getting their education from porn? And is that a good thing or bad thing? Or is it both? It's definitely a bad thing when exactly what you said, you don't have the lens of discernment. Uh, discernment to me is the most crucial thing that you can provide a young person with because there's so much information. So no one should be positioning themselves as like the singular source of truth because they're going to come up against a variety of perspectives. And you have to know not just what is true from what's not true, but what's true for you and not true for you. Uh, what actually feels good and uplifting to you and what feels frightening, uncomfortable and not there for you at this time. So I think that porn can be incredible if it is used. I always say the example, porn is not a bad thing, like just the same way that WWE wrestling is not a bad thing. If you view it the way it's supposed to be, these are paid performers. Um, and to your point, you have to really try your best to source out ethically paid performers, people who are not there um, out of their own control, people who are not sex trafficked, but by and large, these are paid performers. They're doing this for entertainment. This is not based on reality. And like similar with WWE wrestling, you have to have a conversation with your kid like, hey, you can't hit your friend over the head with a chair and expect them to be fine the next day. That's not going to like those, that's not real. And if you view it that way, that it's entertainment, it's fun, you can use it as a source of inspiration and then use that to actually find what is the actual truth behind it. So I'm not anti-porn by any means, but it has to be viewed at with a discerning eye. And you do have to make an effort to look for porn that actually is empowering and uplifting. And if you find that your porn consumption makes you feel really heavy and dark and negative, that could be because of the source. That could be because of the actual performers and what their truth is. And you're empathetically picking up on that. So I think that there's um, great that can come from it. But unfortunately, anything that's free, you have to look for. And that's Erica Lust, who's an incredible feminist porn director. And she has a pay for play site that's kind of similar to Netflix. But she made this comment that if they were giving out free hot dogs on the side of the road, you'd probably be like, what? Why are these hot dogs free? You wouldn't just like, consume them at will rapidly. And so the same thing with porn, if you're getting it for free and you're not feeling good afterwards, there's probably something in that source that is not healthy for you. And whether that is something you're empathetically picking up on, or again, it's not reflected in reality and not reflected in your own desires.
That is so smart to say. And that's such a fantastic analogy because it's so true. It's the same thing with like even just a Facebook page. Like you don't technically ever have to pay for Facebook, but it's a billion, billion, billion dollar company. So like where are they getting the money from? Yes. Anything that you're consuming that's for free, you have to ask yourself, well, like, where is the profit? Because we live in a capitalist society, so that's coming from somewhere. So I'm curious now, what are some ways that people can actually start educating themselves on just their own sexual preferences? Like, let's say somebody comes to you and they're like, I feel out of touch sexually with myself. Like, what's like the first few things that you go through with a person? I would say first and foremost, uh, you gotta know where you are, right? Like if you're trying to do MapQuest and you're trying to figure out how to get to the nearest Chipotle, you gotta know where you're at first. (laughs) So pinpoint and map out how you feel, where you're at and why you feel that way. And if you are coming from a place of 20 years of repression and 20 years of shame and um, multiple partners who told you very negative things about your body or multiple negative experiences or whatever it is, you can't expect for tomorrow for you to get to Chipotle. What I'm saying Chipotle, I mean sex positivity, whatever that means for you. Sexual liberation, feeling really in control and in power and in touch with your sexual self. So knowing where you're coming from and how many obstacles you have to overcome, because your drive might be 30 minutes, it might be 30 years. And that's okay in either case. So I always say to people, if you've had 20 years of negative programming, it's likely that you might need a minimum of two years to really get yourself out of that before you can get to a place of adding on new positive things. Just getting to the basic space of my sexual self is valid. My sexual needs are good. My sexuality can be a healthy part of my life. And I am excited to both own and share and take control of who I am as an intimate being. Like that base level in itself may take people years to get to, but that's about a conversation with yourself to kind of really figure out where you're at. Now, in terms of finding tools of what to do next, I think once you identify where you're at, it might become clear, like religions played a very large role in my sexual understanding. So let me really dive into the why. Why were certain messages you know, promoted in religion? How are those beneficial or not beneficial to me? What is the truth in that that actually does serve the purpose of where I want to be? So in knowing where you're at, it actually will inform what kinds of resources you need to look to next to get to that space of feeling positively about your sexual self. For some people, they're coming from a place of trauma, a place of whether that be physical or psychological, and it is going backwards before they can go forwards. My journey for me, because it was so much based on ignorance and like, I didn't know the basics, you know, I didn't know the basics of my body. So That's why the library was my jump off point because I realized, all right, some people have researched this and those people are clearly not my parents and it's not the priest at my school. They don't know what the fuck they're talking about and my friends don't know and the books I'm reading don't know, the fiction books. So who might know? Maybe somebody with a couple of letters after their name. Maybe somebody whose book has been revered as a sex textbook go-to. Maybe that person might know. So my journey into this was really informed by understanding what the issues were that I was currently facing. So it sounds like we have to do a lot of self-exploration and require this self-knowledge to just even start like a landing point, like a, like the starting point of like, how do we get to Chipotle? And it's just like, well, where are you right now? Because so many people don't even know where they're at. They just know that either they're not having the sex that they want to have or the sex that they are having isn't great or that 
if they're not having it with the partners that they want to have it with, like, there's just so many aspects to it. And so it's like, okay, we have to actually like, we got to like, look inward, like what's going on? Is there like you mentioned, the religious aspect of it? Is there a spiritual aspect of it? Is there trauma? Is there lack of communication? Is there certain, you know, stigmatizing beliefs, like all of those things. And that kind of leads me into my second question. I'm wondering if you've had a lot of people come to you talking about having, you know, low body image and how that affects their sex life, because cannot tell you how big of a question that is on my page for people who are struggling with low body image and they can't have sex without the lights off. They can't have sex without a t-shirt on. They can't have sex unless it's in very specific positions that make them feel safe and like they're not going to be seen in certain ways. Have you come across those questions? A hundred percent. First and foremost, if you're in a position where you've identified what you need to do to feel liberated and sexual and focused on pleasure in the moment, be that lights off or t-shirt, amazing. Because if you do what makes you feel good, you know, you can step outside of your, stepping outside of your comfort zone is like creeping outside your comfort zone. So if you're only having sex with the lights off for 20 times, and it's amazing those 20 times and you feel great and you have a partner who's affirming, maybe the 21st time you might feel comfortable lighting a candle. So it's those creeping steps. You have to be successful at the thing that you know right now in order to grow outside of that comfort zone. So I applaud anybody who's been able to identify the environmental factors or emotional factors they require to even engage in sex at all. So kudos to you for that. Some people are so laden with repression that they don't even have a start point. There was an incredible book that I read that's called The Psychology of Love. And there's a chapter in specificity that's called The Politics of Sex and Love. And it was just really talking about how when we have conversations around attractiveness, we often talk about like the biological factors of health, of hip to waist ratio. We talk about facial symmetry, but what we're really failing to talk about are the other socialized factors that essentially create a system of hierarchy of attractiveness based on you know able-bodiedness, body size, racial ethnicity, and class in many cases. And so you have to acknowledge what are some of the factors that can be contributing to your own feelings of lack of worthiness. And they were saying that people who are consistently told, whether overtly or, or even just through lack of representation, that they're not sexy, that they're not meant to be sexualized, that those individuals masturbate less. Those individuals even fantasize less about sex or don't see themselves in sexual fantasies because they've been told they don't have a right or an entry point into this place because they don't qualify based on the factors that are promoted constantly in society. So it starts first and foremost, I always say this with you, and that's the benefit of being in the world that we're in right now, especially under quarantine, when you're at home, you have so much more control over what you see. You have so much more control over what you're exposed to. So why not take the time to start following people who look like you, who affirm you as sexy, people who have been able to achieve sexual liberation, despite the fact that they're not getting a billboard, um, despite the fact that they're probably not shown on mainstream porn. Like those are the types of individuals you should be having in your zeitgeist so that you start to first and foremost see yourself as sexy and as worthy of sex. And when it starts to feel good enough for you, masturbate to yourself in the mirror. Um, you know, delight in your own body, delight in the way that you look in your sexual faces and what makes you desirable, desire yourself. And then that's to me a better starting block. But like I said, I also applaud the people who have 
figured out for them what works right now because it's fucking really, really hard to do that for anybody, especially people, you know, who exist in minority cultures. Yeah, absolutely. So it sounds like what makes you feel liberated and what makes you feel sexual is a check mark. That is great. And even if it's having sex with the lights off, having sex with a shirt on or whatever it is, you do you whatever can make you feel really empowered in the moment and then check in with yourself. If those things are things that you, you know, want to challenge yourself on, then you can take those baby steps to becoming more liberated and more empowered. And that's such a good point about seeing yourself as sexual. And if you are not represented in mainstream culture in the media, then you will see yourself as less sexual. You might experience sexuality less. That 100% rang true for me in a conversation with somebody. We were talking specifically about this, specifically about size and about race and how we were talking about that we need to be very mindful of the porn that we consume because of that. And I didn't realize that for so long. I mean, again, like, because you, so many of us live our lives on autopilot. I never realized that, oh yeah, I wasn't watching couples that are either different abilities, different sizes, different races. Like I wasn't watching those types of couples. I was watching like two white couples all the time in porn instead of, and then watching that with my partner who may not have even have been similar to those people in the porn. Like it was, it was everything. And so being really mindful of like, what are you consuming? What's around you and how that, that is going to reflect inside of you and so on and so forth. Do you find yourself sexy? Are you turned on by yourself? I do. Yeah, it definitely comes in waves because of the low body image. So there will be times where I'm with my partner and I feel so confident and I feel like exactly what you were talking about. So liberated and so sexual and so great. And then if I'm having a bad day for some reason, it's like the furthest thing from my mind. Like it just doesn't feel like me and my body are connected in that way whatsoever. So I definitely have that, that I like work through in the moment where I'm like, okay, what do I, especially if my partner is like, you know, flirting with me and and like trying to be like erotic in some way, I will 100% ask myself, I'm like, okay, is this something that we want? Is this something that we can do? Or is this something that like, we don't want to do tonight? And that was also something that I was going to ask you. There was this really interesting episode that Esther Perel was talking about. And this woman had experienced infidelity with her husband. And then Esther Perel was talking about ways that they can regain their um, sexual intimacy back. And she was like, even if you're not feeling it, like touch him on his arm, like, you know, grab his shoulders, continue to try to like connect physically. And the woman said, but why? Like, shouldn't like sex be natural? And then Esther said, where the hell did you get that idea from? (laughs) And I thought that was so funny. And then Esther Perel said later in comments that sometimes the desire comes after you've initiated it. Do you find that that's true? Because I feel like also there's like some conflicting messages that like we should feel desire and then we should, you know, uh, make like hit on our partner and like, you know, make that bid. But then her saying that, you know, the desire comes after it could come like in the moment after you've made that bid for connection. Do you agree with that? Yeah. There's actually a book that I love that's kind of called the Big Sexy Sex Book. And Dr. Ian Kerner talks about that too, how a study that he did showed that a lot of 
people with vulvas in particular don't actually start to get aroused until about five minutes into the process. And you know, Masters mm. and Johnson's sexual response cycle, it's usually like in this specific flow of like, you're aroused and then you're excited and you have plateau and you have orgasm and you have refraction. And for some people, arousal doesn't actually come until plateau. Arousal mm. or like the desire may not actually come until after there's stimulation happening. And so acknowledging that sometimes it's out of order I think a big factor as well too is in, I mean, I'm married now. So this like really speaks to me is when you first get into a relationship, you're on a roller coaster of sex drive. You know, that person mm. is new, your body and your neurochemicals are doing all the fucking work for you. You are on a roller coaster. All you got to do is put your hands up and enjoy like dopamine and that risk and reward factor and the adrenaline rush that you're getting and the need for your serotonin levels to sync up. And so your body is driving you towards them. But as you become more familiar and love transforms from passionate to companionate, you no longer get those bump of neurochemicals. Mm. It's no longer risky to be having sex with your partner. It's no longer a new dopamine mm. you know, inducing effect. And so as a result of that, your roller coaster turns into a car. And now you have to manually drive. You have to decide how fast you're going, how slow mm. you're going, you have to decide what direction you're taking. And a lot of us yearn for that time again where it was just all automatic and done for us. But mm. look at it like there's something actually a lot more beautiful about being in control about getting to decide when you do feel erotic, when you do feel aroused, when you do want to engage rather than being like a slave to your bodies mm -hmm. and you know feelings. I recall that feeling, especially in my teens where girl, like my drive to be penetrated by a penis was so stupid. Like it was uncontrollable. I'm like what? I didn't even like the sex. I didn't even like sex. It was just like the drive to be penetrated was unbelievable. I don't want to go back to that. So I like the fact now that it's a thought, it's a conscious decision. I have to create environmental and mental factors that actually even make it a possibility for my body to be interested in doing that. So if you look at it as more of a gift and less of a curse to have to be manual about it, I think that you know it allows you to get to know yourself and your needs a lot better. And uh, that Esther Perel podcast in terms of I'm like I'm kind of on the fence. I haven't heard the full thing about that, but I'm not really a big fan of it. Do it even if it makes you feel uncomfortable. You know what I mean? Like if you're still like um, I'm I'm hurt by my partner or I'm like not feeling it in some way. Like just keep going and you'll you'll get into it. Because I think about the refraction phase, I may not have like felt great about that experience. Um, so I I think I, what I would want to do is like lessen the stakes and be like I'm just gonna try today just holding my partner and see how that feels and that's where I'm going to go with it and if that feels good kind of going to that creeping out of the comfort zone sometimes you have to do something successfully 20 times before you're ready to add on a different step like when you're learning a sport you learn dribbling and that's all you fucking do for like weeks and weeks and you feel good you put the ball through your legs um so I think that that like you may have to especially with a trauma or an infidelity or breaking trust in some ways you may have to go back to the beginning of training yourself and your body to feel comfortable and relaxed and open for somebody else. Because sex will start to feel good. You know, that's you have nerve endings that do that for you. It will start to physically feel good. But my goal and my work is to make sure that the holistically, the whole experience is pleasurable for you. Yes, absolutely. And I 100% am on the fence about what she was saying as well, because it was interesting to me from somebody who has had those moments where I have been like so in my head about my own body that I knew that I wanted sex, but I didn't have that desire that it made sense for me. You know, it definitely 
made sense that, oh, okay, so maybe the desire does come five minutes after, you know, becoming physical with my partner. And that makes sense. Like you said, like the sequence can be a little bit, you know, out of sorts, but also checking in with yourself that like, of course, if you're angry with your partner, if there's unresolved stuff, then like maybe, maybe it's okay to deal with that stuff first instead of forcing yourself to be intimate. So yeah, and you got to know, like some people, like my partner can not is not capable of makeup sex, not capable of makeup intimacy at all. So for some people at the height of emotions, you experience arousal transfer where your adrenaline is pumping, your heart is racing and your body is like, are we horny or are we pissed? Don't worry, we'll have sex with our partner and figure it out afterwards. Other people, it's because they are in that state of fight or flight and they're so anxious and their emotions are so high, they can't even fathom getting to that common connect place that intimacy requires. And so I'll often try to like hug my partner like during an argument in the middle and he gets so angry at that because for him, it really is about resolving, feeling peaceful, feeling at one mentally before the physical is even an option. So it's like, what's true for you? Like I, I always say that they, you can't like ever give blanket advice in this area because I can be like, don't do it unless you feel at peace. And someone's like, I had the best sex and we were at war. And I'm like, that's true for you. So, um, right. Absolutely. What about being sexually compatible? Do you think that that's like something that let's say you go out on a date with someone and you start seeing them and everything is great, but maybe the sex isn't quite there. Is that something that can grow or is that something that you think like two people should have right off the bat? Oh girl, it can definitely grow. I think that every relationship, everything in general, I'm looking for houses right now. And there's always something, there's always one thing that you're like, like, why is it in this neighborhood? Or like, oh, you guys couldn't redo the showers. And so um, that compromise is going to exist across the board. I think it's massively important. I have this thing I really, really promote called Frozen Five. And it's like similar to when you go to look for a job, they'll have job qualifications at the top. And those essentially mean like, hey, if you don't have these, please don't read on to like skills of interest, because we need somebody who have this to order successfully be a candidate for this job to contribute meaningfully in the way that we require for this position. Here's what we need you to have. So I think that it's somewhat important to have that in mind when you're looking for partners. And if sexual compatibility is really, really important to you, you might put more weight on whether or not you have that in the beginning, but anything can grow. Like all relationships are going to come with some type of, you know, bump in the road. Myself and my partner are seven years, six years apart. And we were really financial. We weren't in the beginning, but like our financial inequality, like within the first like two years became a really big gap. And so that's a deal breaker for some people. It's something that we've been able to successfully overcome through talking about it, through working on it, through managing expectations together. And we started out as fuck buddies. So the sex part wasn't hard for us. That was where we had natural compatibility. So you can celebrate the fact that you probably have great, you know, flows in some areas and ebbs in other Um, But like I said, if you really value sexual compatibility, it's a part of your top five frozen five needs. And you can see that your partner, you know, has a long way to go before they get to Chipotle and maybe has a lot of work to do and is not actually open to that journey. and is not open to figuring out where they're at at this time. And you can tell that you're up for a really tedious uphill battle. That's when I might might say, "Ah, maybe this isn't the partnership for you. Yeah. I and think let's just like stop saying Chipotle. Like, I don't even like that place. I'm giving them free advertising. It's just, it's too late. It's a fun word to say, though. I will say that. I enjoy saying the word. Um, just, yeah, this is not an advert for yeah. Chipotle. <laughs> Disclaimer. Yeah, I definitely think that if your partner has 
open-mindedness as a characteristic, you can actually have a lot of fun with somebody who's open-minded, especially someone who's like open-minded and open-hearted. So that way you can have those difficult conversations. You can bring that stuff up saying like, I'm not really feeling sex with, I'm not really feeling sex in this way, or we always do this one thing and I need to find a new way in order to explore myself or whatever it is. I'm curious about before and after sex conversations for couples, because I know that the BDSM and the kink community have this down. Like they know pre-sex conversations, they know post-sex conversations, they know about aftercare and all that stuff. And then there's a huge chunk of the population, the vanilla community, which like whatever sex you're having is like awesome. Whatever makes you feel liberated is like good. But there's a huge chunk of the community that they're not having those conversations at all. And again, like kind of like running on autopilot. And I'm curious if you can give us some tips about like pre-sex conversations and then post-sex conversations. Yeah, Kenzie, you just hit nail on the head. I mean, there's no need to reinvent the wheel when certain communities have really had it down. Um, The kink community, everything is a no until you get a yes. Oftentimes in the vanilla community, everything is a yes until someone says no. And so you got to really switch your mind to everything is off the table until both of us invited consensually, mutually, and mindfully on the table. Also, the kink community is risk-aware Iraq, risk-aware consensual kink. And that means you can't agree to something that you're not aware of exactly what it is, what it entails, and what's asking of your body. So that in itself, I think, is a great place to start from. When it comes to conversations around sex, the one like basic tip I would say is Let's stop thinking about like the talk of sex having to be something that's like negative. I think we reserve talking about sex for when something is going wrong, which makes it uncomfortable. You really have to think about the properties that make sex great. What makes sex good? Um, it feels free. It's fun. It's encouraging. You learn something new. You experience pleasure. You give pleasure to somebody else. It's wet. It's spontaneous. It's erotic. There's flow to it, but there's also flow that you're both on the same page with. So your dialogue around sex should mirror that. So if you're talking about sex and it starts off with, hey, about last night, I really think we have to talk. That's not good sex. Like, that's like, I don't want to be at that party. I'd rather be somewhere like, hey, you know, yesterday when you pulled out that one toy, that trick that you did, it was incredible. You know, I really enjoyed doing that. That was a lot of fun. You know, I noticed we spent a lot of time, you know, doing manual play with like fingers and stuff, which I really think is cool. But to be honest with you, when we used the toy, I really got off on that. And I loved seeing the way that you were able to maneuver that and read my body so expertly. And so what you're doing on that is like you're emphasizing what you liked rather than putting the emphasis on what you don't like. So you can yum somebody into guidance or you can yuck them. And so yumming is when we make out and you kiss me with your mouth closed. I just really think it's such a tease and so tantalizing. Yucking somebody is your mouth is open the whole fucking time like a goat and it's disgusting. Like, can you work on that? Um, The same goal can be accomplished just by highlighting what you do like versus making it clear what you don't. But if you can make the conversation fun and inviting and just like sexy and cool, I think that it's easy to make it a part of your sexual appetoire for both before and after. Yes. Oh, that is so good that we can sometimes only bring up sex when there are negative things that happened or there are negative things that we want to touch on. And 
instead of that, we could just make sex a regular conversation and just like make it an all the time thing instead of like, we have to discuss sex. And so there's like this looming, you know, like rain cloud (laughs) over the conversation. And we, and I would say like, even like couples could even just start off by saying like, what do you like during sex? Like, what is it that I do that you like? And then vice versa. And then the next conversation can be like, what are things that I could do differently, you know, and then just like do those baby steps. Because I mean, I'm at that point in, in my relationship is that we have conversations about sex all the time, you know, and it's like, it's a good thing, bad thing, neutral thing. It's just, it's like curious thing, like, huh, what did we think of that? And it's just like, I don't know, it's okay. And then you move on to like what the weather is like, really. And it's become so natural and I never had that before and now it's like how did I live before like how did I exist and how was this like how was I not having this communication I have shout no out idea to your partner they're getting so many like little hype ups in this podcast so shout out to you you're doing something great <laughs> he's very wonderful very <laughs> wonderful he's gonna really like hearing that too <laughs> Um, so yes, so we discussed the, the pre and post sex conversations and that sex is just so many things. Like you said, the flow, the connection, the spontaneity, becoming experts on our bodies and someone else's body, having the yucking versus yumming conversations. I think that that's all so, so, so good. So let's say we are in the moment. So we're having, we're in the moment of having sex and our partner does something that we may not like. Maybe it's switching to a new position that doesn't feel great. Maybe it's too much or too little dirty talk, whatever it is. What would you do in that situation? Because it feels really nerve wracking to tell someone, hey, can we do something different mid act? Maybe we're worried about like, you know, ruining the mood or maybe we're worried about, you know, hurting their feelings or just not being a very good partner. What would you say in that situation? I'd say probably, again, trying to encourage the things that you do like. Also, sometimes assessing. It's a really slippery slope on this one because nothing is worse than making your partner feel like they can't be authentic in expression to you. So if it's something like, if it's something that's offensive to you, so if their dirty talk is like, you know, calling you some kind of name or, you know, referring to you in a, in a way that makes you feel fetishized, then maybe it's might be you know worth it just like whisper in their ear like sexily like less talk i want your mouth doing other things on me and then maybe to address afterwards like i really like dirty talk but i really just feel like the, the language that you use sounds very indicative of porn and it doesn't make me feel celebrated but if it's just a matter of like personal taste sometimes like oh i would personally not say that or i personally wouldn't like that i, I think that there, there's probably a middle ground that you can find between the two of you I I can't think of a time that I've ever, but because myself and my partner have really like worked into it, talking about things and asking for consent and being very clear and toys are also a really great way too, because you have to introduce something. And so it becomes clear what the act is in, a, in association with that. Um, so I haven't gone to a situation before I can think of where they just whipped something out midway through that made me feel really uncomfortable. But if different sides of my partner show up during sex, which does happen, you know, they get a little aggressive or they get very sensual or they cry or they make noises that are new. I, I do try to leave grace and space for them not to do exactly what it is that I want. I mean, not to feel constantly the need to like edit or reprimand. Because again, I know sometimes when I do things that maybe are new and maybe corny to them or maybe not their cup of tea, I kind of like the opportunity just to be an expression of myself in that moment. So I'd say weigh it. If it's something that actually offends you, um, hurts you, 
puts you in a harmful position, makes you feel marginalized or, you know, minimized in any way, that's something in the moment, maybe just steering away from that activity in a sensual soft way. And then afterwards, just making it clear, like, I, I like that you dirty talk. It's just, this doesn't work for me. Or I love that you get aggressive, but if you're going to get aggressive, you know, here's some tips on how to spank, you know, here's a part of your hand that I want you to use. Here's a parts of my body's that do feel more comfortable. That might be the the way to go. And what about orgasming? Because I know that orgasms, they, I mean, they feel amazing and they're lovely. Can you just at least actually, because I know that there's going to be some listeners who actually don't even know if they've had an orgasm or not before. Can you quickly define what an orgasm is and give us some tips on how we can actually achieve orgasms a little bit better? Yeah. So the book that everybody with a vulva should read, and everyone should read period, I think this is really fascinating, is Come As You Are. And um, that book, she, Dr. Emily, I can't remember her last name, Nagoski. Let me just stop right there. Dr. Emily, um, she essentially describes an orgasm as a sudden release of sexual tension. And I like that definition because it releases it from being euphoric or because I think if you're not sure if you've had an orgasm is because your expectations are what you've seen in porn, your expectations are what your friends have told you. Because for some people, that release of sexual tension might be hallmarked by rapid contractions. It might be hallmarked by a rush of blood or a rush of euphoria. And for some people, it's just all of a sudden, I no longer desire stimulation in that area. Or I desire more stimulation in that area because I feel like something has shifted. So if you just define it as a release of sexual tension, I think orgasm has a lot more wiggle room to apply to a lot more people. Um, And I think that with that, you know, there's nipplegasms, there's eargasms. Um, The primary place of orgasm for people with vulvas is the clitoris because it has 8,000 nerve endings. It is the only body part known to man, period, of any mammal um, that's sole function is pleasure. For people with penises, it's the glands of the penis, but you know those are the same body parts by and large when we're all developing. The difference between a penis and a vulva is essentially the clitoris either stays underwater like an iceberg or it comes out to play and it's an elephant trunk, but it's the same uh, tissue, the same uh, amount of like the same makeup that makes up both body parts. So those are usually people's go-to places for erotic play, but anywhere that has nerve endings, Anywhere that you build up sexual tension that you can feel a release from, you know, that's where you can achieve orgasm. And I know that there are definitely beliefs that orgasms are the point of sex, that we have sex to orgasm. Do you ever find that you have to retrain people's ideas on the fact that sex isn't about orgasms, it's about connection to yourself and to somebody else in that moment. Yeah, because I mean if you're if you're experiencing or you're, you're having a kink for example, the point of sex isn't the orgasm, it's the play. It's the scene that you guys are both devoting yourself to. So there are certain types of sex that yes, orgasm is the goal and if you're somebody who experiences orgasm in a way that's pleasurable to you and that you want to do and that your partner enjoys doing as well too, it can be the goal of sex. I have tons of sex where the point is orgasm. But a lot of the, my greatest sexual experiences, nobody ever came. Um, a lot of my greatest sexual experiences, I didn't have an orgasm. So it just um, it's just more so less about like defining what an orgasm is and more about redefining what sex could be to you. 
And sex is essentially anything that is uh, engaging in your sexual self. And that might be playing with your dominant and your submissive, your masculine and your feminine. That could be playing just with the different parts of your body. That could be experiencing yourself as an object of exhibitionism, you know, where you just feel sexual. And that might be what sex is for you for that day. So I think um, orgasm can be a part of that. It doesn't have to be. And I know tons of people who have really amazing sex who have never orgasmed before. And those are people who I also look at like, damn, you've got an awesome sex life. That is amazing. That's so, so, so great. And I know that we definitely put those standards on ourselves because so many of us, our education has been porn. It has been the media and stuff. And so we assume that like every sexual encounter is going to be like this huge performance where, you know, you're going to like come all over the place and like it's just going to be the sexiest thing. And it's like, yeah, okay, nine times out of 10, it's like slow, deep communication or it's like awkward or it's like fun and silly or like whatever it is. But it's so far off from at least the education that I got growing up, which is from porn. So I 100% think that we also just have to redefine our standards and watch how we are giving definitions to the words like what sex is and what that means and what that entails instead of it being about the end goal is to, you know, orgasm. It's to play, it's to connect, it's to do all of those things. I love that. 100%. And I think that that's a part of the re-education that a lot of us have to do for ourselves. And through that re-education, you discover so many different ways of expressing your sexual self. And so you only benefit from broadening the definition. Sometimes I think the people who have like the, I want to, this is a, not an official term, but like autopilot sex lives. What I mean by that is that you're way of experience and expressing sex or your body is like heavily promoted in media. So you never actually had to challenge your thought process around it because what you see is a reflection of what you experience. And what you see is a reflection of what you experience when you look in the mirror. And people like that don't actually ever feel like, oh, is there more to this? Because they're like, oh, what I saw is what I do and it's what feels best for me. Like I often say like people who have really large penises never really develop their sexual game because they're told all their lives that the goal of great sex and the the pinnacle of masculinity is a large penis. So if you have that, your work is done. So I sometimes feel like people who aren't in those brackets of, you know, heavy, heavily advertised and people who whose sexual needs aren't expressed often in the media or in porn or other depictions are actually the ones who end up having the better sex life because they have to go searching. And in that search you find what your sexual truth is. And nine times out of 10, mm. that's not what's mainstream. Oh, yes. Such a good point. Thank you so much for saying that. And I know that there is that classic joke where it's like, yeah, you know, the person who has the big penis just has to show up and then that's it. And like 100%, <laughs> there are so many ways that we have made that to be like you said, like the pinnacle where that's it, like, you know, you, you've you won. But then I know particularly so many cis men who fall in that category who feel so isolated during sex because they don't know what they like. They're not with partners that are actually connecting with them. They're not connected to themselves and all of, anyways, all of those things. And it's like, yeah, you 100%, like you said, you need to like 
re-educate yourself and you need to get in touch with yourself in different ways and you need to start looking at the world through different lenses, through the lenses of so many different people. What are your favorite resources when it comes to what we're talking about? Oh, I think like, um, I mean... And you can um, you can definitely <laughs> um, plug anything of yours in here. I know, right? It's me. That's my favorite resource. I don't know. I mean, I think that this this question always terrifies me because then you're like, I don't know. Like, what is the smartest thing I could possibly say right now? I just think um, utilize... Your community, honestly, my favorite resource is my community. My favorite resource, and that's the greatest part about what I do for a living, is that if I'm in search of a question, it's literally a tweet away um, or it's an Insta story away. So my favorite resource has been real people's stories, real people's experiences. I'm actually doing a video right now that's how to get pregnant and just shit people sharing their like how they got pregnant stories. And I'm learning so much through watching the actual real accounts of other individuals. Now, mind you, not everybody has the the resource or the, the the community that I have of people who are willing to share in that way. And that's where seeking out porn that is ethical might be helpful to you. Seeking out books that um, people in the community are are revering and saying is positive. And there's so much, not only information out there, but there's information on the information. There are reviews, there are communities, there's peer reviews. And so Finding what the creme de la creme of whatever given topic you're looking for is actually not as hard as you think. And even if you don't have a large audience of people, give it a try going out there and just seeing to your local, even your your group chat. What books have you read on this? What have you found interesting? And you'll be surprised how many people pick up breadcrumbs along the way. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. And where can we all find you online? Oh, you can find me anywhere, um, Shambuti. I'm going to actually promote, I have a show right now on Quibi. It's called Sexology. It's a daily show. It's actually a part of their daily essential slate, which is a ridiculous thing for me to wrap my mind around when I think about how I began in this space and how taboo it was and how unwelcome my work was. And now to be in a space where I have a show that is referred to as a daily essential that essentially is all about sex and intimacy and love. And the point of that is to highlight different stories and different experiences. And every day is a different topic for the episodes. So that's been on now for two months. So there's tons of episodes to go and binge watch right now. And you can watch Sexology just by going to your app store and downloading Quibi. And there's a free trial for that. So great. Congratulations. You completely deserve you deserve all the success. And I really hope that our listeners learned something today. I know that I did. And this was such a needed conversation. And your work is so, so, so important. And your voice is incredible. So thank you so much. Thank you, Kenzie. This was amazing. Thank you for the work that you do. I absolutely love getting to follow you and see the space that you occupy and knowing that there's someone out there like you who's sharing their truth and being sexual and being sensual and that you found a partner who allows you to stretch (laughs) out into your best sexual self. Like this has all been a great news podcast. I appreciate you. Oh, thanks, Chan. We'll have to do a round two sometime. All right, friends, you made it to the end of the episode. You know what to do now. Head over to our Instagram account, Conversations with Kenzie, and let us know what you loved about the episode. Or let us know what you didn't love. What questions did we miss? What questions could we have asked differently? Let us know there. As always, stay curious, keep asking questions, and keep making conversations in your everyday life. Until next time.